Section 9 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 11, Part 2. On the 11th of November, Lord Galway came to inform Mary Beatrice that he had seen her son as he passed through Chalons that he appeared thoughtful, but was very well, and even growing fat, though he took a great deal of exercise, and that he made the tour of the ramparts of that town every day on foot. The king, his father, was accustomed to do the like, said her majesty, and rarely sat down to table till he had taken his walk. Lord Galway said that, the prince bade him tell her majesty that he was much better in health than at Saint-Germain, and wished she could see him. It would give me extreme joy to see him again, replied Mary Beatrice meekly, but I must not desire what is not the will of God. It was upwards of two months since she had enjoyed that happiness. Her majesty afterwards walked with the community to the orangery, and a detached building, belonging to the conventual establishment, to some little distance in their grounds, which they called the small mansion. She returned vigorously from this walk, without being the least out of breath, and having walked very fast, she asked the nun who had had the honor to give her her hand, if she had not tired her. To which the religieuse, being too polite to reply in the affirmative, said, there were some moments in which she had not felt so strong as usual. Your answer reminds me, rejoins the queen playfully, of what they say in Italy when anyone inquires of another, are you hungry? The answer to which is not yes, but I should have no objection to eat again. The next day, Mary Beatrice mentioned with great pleasure, having received a letter from her aunt, who was then a Carmelite nun. She writes to me with the most profound humility, said Her Majesty. As if she were the least person in the world, I am ashamed to say I have not written to her for a long time. We used to dispute with one another which should be a nun. I was fifteen and she was thirty, when they first spoke of a marriage with the Duke of York, and we each said to the other in secret, It will be you that will be chosen. But the lot fell to me. On the 14th of November, Mary Beatrice found herself weary and indisposed. She had taken one of her bad colds, coughed all the time she was at her toilette, and grew worse towards evening. She had a bad night, with cough and sore throat, and difficulty breathing. At five in the morning, Madame Molza, who slept in her chamber, was alarmed, and called the nun who kept the keys, to come and give her opinion. The nun said her majesty was in a high fever, and went to tell the Duchess of Perth, who immediately rose, and wrote to Saint-Germain for her majesty's physician, and Monsieur Beaulieu, her French surgeon, to come to her. They did not arrive till two in the afternoon, which caused great uneasiness, for the queen grew visibly worse, and her mind was so deeply impressed with the death of her daughter, that she thought herself to be dying, and those about her had some trouble to compose her. The fever was so high that it was thought necessary to bleed her, and for two days she was in imminent danger. She was, besides, in great dejection of spirits. Her Majesty, says our Shiloh diary, was very sad during her sickness, not so much at the idea of death, but because she had not her children near her as on former occasions, 
and above all it renewed in her remembrance the princess who had been accustomed whenever she was ill to wait upon her as a nurse mary beatrice had borne the first agony of her bereavement terrible and unexpected as it was with the resignation of a christian heroine but every day she felt it more acutely and during her weary convalescence she pined for her lost treasure with unutterable yearnings while the poor queen was still confined to her chamber a striking sermon was preached in the conventual church on the love of god by pere grayman in which he said that sometimes three sacrifices were required by our heavenly father which he should briefly express in three latin words tua tuos te that is to say thy goods thy children and thyself when this was repeated to mary beatrice she cried with a deep sigh small is the sacrifice of tua or the goods in comparison with tuos the children on a former occasion she had said job bore the loss of his goods unmoved but when he heard of the loss of his children he rent his garments and fell prostrate to the earth mary beatrice had the consolation of receiving a most affectionate and dutiful letter from her son expressing the greatest concern for her illness and begging her to take care of her health for his sake since the most overwhelming of all his calamities would be the loss of her the chevalier was still at chalon sur marne waiting the event of the negotiations at utrecht the payment of the two bills of sixteen thousand francs each which cardinal gualtiero had persuaded the queen to hold after she had regarded them as lost money had enabled her to send him some seasonable pecuniary relief at his greatest need and also to discharge a few trifling debts of her own in england of long standing which had distressed her scrupulous sense of honesty she gave one thousand francs among the three domestic sisters who had waited upon her in her sickness and during her long sojourn in the convent on the first sunday in advent perceiving that all her ladies were worn out with fatigue and weary of the monotony of the life they led at chalot and hearing withal many complaints of her absence from saint germain she at last made up her mind to return thither the next day monday december fifth she was very low-spirited at the thought of it coughed very much all night and in the morning appeared wavering in her purpose but seeing everything prepared for her departure she was about to make her adieu when she was informed the duc de lauzun wished to speak to her it was inconvenient to give audience to any one just as she was setting off on her journey but she judged that he had something important to communicate and gave orders to admit him he was the bearer of evil tidings for he came to break to her the tragic death of the duke of hamilton who had been slain in a duel with lord mahoon not without strong suspicions of foul play on the part of his antagonist second general mccartney the duke of hamilton was at that time the main pillar of her son's cause in scotland he was in correspondence with herself had just been appointed ambassador to the court of france secretly empowered it has generally been supposed by queen anne to make arrangements with the court of saint germain for the adoption of the exiled prince as her successor on condition of his remaining quiet during her life little doubt existed of the duke being able by his great interest in parliament to obtain the repeal of the act of settlement for the royal succession the queen was deeply affected by the melancholy news and the ladies perth and middleton wept bitterly 
it was a great blow to the whole party and cast a deeper gloom on their return to the desolate palace of saint germain her majesty's chair being brought into the gallery for she was still too feeble to walk she prepared to enter it after she had taken some bread in a little broth but seeing one of the community who had waited on her while she was in the convent she presented her hand to her and said i console myself with the hope of your seeing me again very soon if it please god she was carried into the tribune where the community attended her and having made her devotions there she was conveyed in a chair to her coach mary beatrice arrived at saint germain at two o'clock in the afternoon the interests of her son required that she should stifle her own private feelings and endeavor to maintain a shadow of royal state by holding her courts and receptions with the same ceremonies though on a smaller scale as if she had been a recognized queen mother of england how well did the words of the royal preacher vanitas vanitatus which were so often on the lips of that pale tearful niobe who in her widow's coif and veil and sable weeds of woe occupied the chair of state on these occasions described the mockery of the attempt the melancholy christmas of seventeen twelve was rendered more distressing to mary beatrice by the intrigues and divisions that agitated her counsel and the suspicions that were instilled into the mind of her absent son of his mentor the earl of middleton who had accompanied him from saint germain to chalons and acted as his principal adviser the old story that he was bribed by the court of st james's to betray the state secrets of the exiled stuarts and had been in the practice of doing this ever since the death of james the second was revived though without any sort of proof and all the misfortunes and failures that had occurred were charged on his mismanagement and treachery it was also stated that he had neglected the interests of the stuart cause in scotland and had promoted instead of opposing the union middleton justified himself from those charges but indignantly offered to withdraw from his troublesome and profitless office mary beatrice having a great esteem for this statesman and a particular friendship for his countess was very uneasy at the idea of his resignation her principal adviser at this time appears to have been the abbe innes who in one of the mystified letters of that period thus writes on the subject paris january ninth seventeen thirteen i was never more surprised than when the queen showed me some letters the king had sent her about mr massey that is lord middleton and the more i thought of it the more i am convinced that villainy must proceed originally either from the irish to remove one whom they looked upon as none of their friends to make way for one of their friends or else that it is a trick of the whigs to ruin jonathan that is the king by insinuating a correspondence with them to give jealousy to the other party and by that means to deprive jonathan of the only person capable of giving him advice mary beatrice took upon herself the office of mediating between her son and their old servant middleton whose wounded feelings she not unsuccessfully endeavoured to soothe in the following letter saint germain january twenty eighth seventeen thirteen i have not had the heart all this while to write to you upon the dismal subject of your leaving the king but i am sure you are just enough to believe that it has and does give to me a great deal of trouble and that which i see it gives the king increases mine 
you tell me in your last letter upon mr hamilton's coming away that if your opinion had been followed you had gone first but if mine were followed you should never go first nor last but alas i am grown so insignificant and useless to my friends that all i can do is to pray for them and god knows my poor prayers are worth but little i own to you that as weary as i am of the world i am not yet so dead to it as not to feel the usage the king and i meet with his troubles are more sensible to me than my own and if all fell only on me and his affairs went well and he were easy i think i could be so too but we must take what God sends, and as he sends it, and submit ourselves entirely to his will, which I hope in his mercy he will give us grace to do, and then in spite of the world all will turn to our good. It can scarcely be forgotten that the princess of Orange, when her sister Anne was endeavoring to inveigle her into the conspiracy for depriving their infant brother of the regal succession, by insinuating that he was a spurious child, feeling dubious that she ought to credit so monstrous a charge without inquiring into the evidences of his paternity propounded among other queries which she sent to anne the simple but important question is the queen fond of him anne being an interested witness replied evasively nature who cannot equivocate has answered unconsciously to the test in the unaffected gush of maternal tenderness with which Mary Beatrice speaks of her son to Lord Middleton in this letter. She says, You told me in one of your former letters that you were charmed with the king being a good son. What do you think then that I must be, that am the poor old doting mother of him? I do assure you, his kindness to me is all my support under God. Mary, but our unfortunate Italian queen, on whose ignorance some historians have been pleased to enlarge, could write plain English with the same endearing familiarity, as if it had been her mother tongue. Our hissing, growling, grunting northern gutturals had become sweeter to her ear than the silvery intonations of her poetic land, and flowed more naturally to her pen. English was the language of those she loved best on earth, the unforgotten husband of her youth and their children. Of the last surviving of these, the pretender, she thus continues in her letter to his offended minister, the Earl of Middleton. And I am confirmed of late, more than ever, in my observation, that the better you are with him, the kinder he is to me. But I am also charmed with him, for being a good master, and a true friend to those who deserve it of him, though I am sorry from my heart that you have not had so much cause of late to make experience of it. M.R. I say nothing to you of business, nor of Mr. Hamilton, for I write all I know to the king, and it is to no purpose, to make repetitions. I expect, with some impatience, a great deal of fear, Humphrey's decision as to France. The meaning of this enigmatical sentence is, whether Queen Anne would permit the Chevalier de St. George to avail himself of the asylum which the Duke of Lorraine had offered him in his dominions. This was in the end privately allowed by her, and publicly protested against by her ministers. Mary Beatrice writes again to the Earl of Middleton on the 9th of February. She had succeeded in prevailing on him to continue with her son, and she says many obliging and encouraging things to him in this letter, which is, however, dry, and chiefly on public business. She there speaks of this secret correspondent, Bolingbroke, 
by the appropriate cognomen of prattler and certainly appears to set very little account on his flattering professions the position of the son of james the second appears by no means in so bad a light to the potentates of europe at this period as it did to the desponding widow who sat in her companionless desolation at saint germain watching the chances of the political game the emperor though he had publicly demurred for nearly three months whether he would or would not grant the chevalier a passport to travel through part of his dominions to bar le duc secretly entertained overtures for connecting the disinherited prince with his own family by a marriage with an archduchess the tender age of his daughter who was only twelve years old was objected by his imperial majesty as an obstacle to her union with a prince in his five-and-twentieth year but he politely intimated at the same time that his sister was of a more suitable time of life queen anne's ill health at this period the unsettled state of the parties in england and the lingering affection of the people to hereditary succession rendered an alliance with the representative of the royal stuarts by no means undeserving of the attention of the princesses of europe the chevalier did not improve the opening that had been made for him by his generous friend the duke of lorraine with the court of vienna his thoughts appear to have been more occupied on the forlorn state of his mother than with matrimonial speculations for himself the manner in which he speaks of this desolate princess in the letter he addressed to louis the fourteenth on the eve of his final departure from his dominions is interesting after expressing his grateful sense of the kindness he and his family had experienced from that monarch he says it is with all possible earnestness that i entreat of your majesty a continuation of it for me and the queen my mother the only person who is left of all who are dearest to me and who deserves so much of me as the best of mothers in writing to louis the fourteenth alone the chevalier would have done little for his mother he was aware that to render her asylum secure he must pay no less attention to the untitled consort by whom the counsels of the aged monarch of france were influenced and with equal earnestness recommended her to the friendship of madame de maintenon in the following elegant billet which implies more than appears on the surface in the way of compliment february nineteenth seventeen thirteen little satisfied madam with the letter i have written to the king in which i have but faintly expressed my sentiments towards him where can i better address myself than to you with a request that you would supply for me everything wherein i have failed i ventured to rely on the kindness of your heart and the friendship you have always had for the queen and me to ask a continuation of it for us both permit me to assure you valueless though it be of mine as well as of the high esteem and gratitude i bear you madam to whom after the king i believe it to be entirely due madame de maintenon was so well pleased with this mark of attention that the next time she saw queen mary beatrice although she made no remark on the letter addressed to herself she set her majesty's heart at rest as to the impression produced by that which he had sent to louis the fourteenth by saying the king your son madam has combined in writing to his majesty that is the king of france the elegance of an academician the tenderness of a son and the dignity of a king the royal mother who had been sent copies of these letters by her son could not refrain from reading them in the pride of her heart to the community at chalot 
the abbess and her nuns extolled them to the skies and begged her majesty to allow them to be transcribed and placed among the archives of their house mary beatrice expressed some reluctance to do so observing that in the present critical position of her son's affairs it might be attended with injurious consequences if letters so strictly private found their way into print she added significantly that she had been much annoyed at seeing some things published in the dutch gazette not being able in any manner to imagine how the information was obtained this was certainly throwing out a delicate hint that her confidence had not been held sacred by some of the members of that community nevertheless she was persuaded to allow copies of her son's letters both to the king of france and madame de maintenon to be taken these have been so carefully preserved that they have survived the dissolution of the convent mary beatrice spent the residue of this melancholy winter the first she had passed without her children at saint-germain her only comfort was hearing from her son that he had been honorably and affectionately received at the court of lorraine by the duke and duchess who were both related to him the duchess of lorraine being the daughter of the late duke of orleans by elizabeth charlotte of bavaria inherited a portion of the stuart blood through her descent from james i and took the most lively interest in her exiled kinsman and did everything in her power to render his sojourn at bar le duc agreeable mary beatrice writes to her friend the abbess of chalot on the twentieth of march a letter commencing with excuses for being an indifferent correspondent because the frequent and long letters she wrote to her son took up all her time her majesty had been making a small but acceptable present to one of the nuns for she says i am glad sister m gabrielle found the tea good but surely that trifling gift did not merit so eloquent a letter of thanks mary beatrice describes her own health to be better than usual expresses herself well pleased with the general bulletin lady strickland had brought of the health of the convent and then says the king my son continues well at bar where the duke of lorraine shows him all sorts of civilities i recommend him earnestly to your prayers my dear mother and to those of your dear daughters he requires patience courage and prudence and above all that god should confirm him in the faith and give him grace never to succumb to the temptations with which he will be assailed by his enemies visible and invisible her majesty then recommends her aged protector louis the fourteenth to the prayers of the sisters of chalot i hope continues she that god will long preserve him to us and that he may enjoy himself the peace he gives to others and which we hope will be signed in this present month of march i desire it with all my heart for the sake of others rather than for myself although it is possible that in time my son may benefit by it meanwhile i leave him and myself also in the hands of god to the end that he may do with us all that pleases him but in whatever state i may find myself be assured my dear mother that i shall be always and with all my heart yours marie r endorsed for my dear mother 1713 before the proclamation of the peace of utrecht mary beatrice sought the welcome repose of her favorite retreat at chalot the queen of england says the diary of that convent 
came here on the 5th of May, 1713. She arrived at four o'clock in the afternoon, and testified much joy at finding herself at Chalot once more. She asked our mother the news of the house, and inquired particularly after all the sisters. While they were preparing her majesty's table, she came into the antechamber herself, to speak to the two domestic sisters, Claire Antoinette and J.M., who were accustomed to serve her. The next day, being very cold, she congratulated herself on having come as she did, for they would never have permitted her to leave Saint-Germain in such weather, lest it should make her ill, and she repeated many times that she was surprised at finding herself in such good health as she had been for the last six months, considering all she had suffered. On the Sunday after her arrival, Her Majesty said, she had prayed to God that he would make her feel his consolations, so that she might say with the royal prophet, In the multitude of sorrows that I had in my heart, thy comforts have refreshed my soul. But that, added she, is what I have not experienced. The Lord does not make me taste his sweetness. Mary Beatrice told the nuns that since the departure of her son, she had no one to whom she could open her heart, a deprivation which she had felt so peculiarly hard, and yet, added she, in losing the persons to whom one is accustomed to unburden our hearts, we lose also some opportunities of displeasing God by our complaints, and acquire the power of passing some days without speaking of those subjects that excite painful emotions. This was, indeed, a point of Christian philosophy to which few have been able to attain. It must be owned that Mary Beatrice strove to improve the uses of adversity to the end for which they were designed by him who chastens those he loves. The moment at length arrived, long dreaded by the sympathizing community of Chalot, when the abbess was compelled to tell their afflicted guest that a solemn te deum was appointed to be sung in their church, as well as all others throughout France, on the day of the ascension, on account of the peace, that peace which had been purchased by the sacrifice of her son, and had poured the last vial of wrath on her devoted head by driving him from Saint-Germain, and depriving him of the nominal title of which he had hitherto been complimented by the monarchs of France and Spain. The intimation regarding the Te Deum was received by Mary Beatrice without comment. She knew that it was a matter in which the abbess had no choice, and she endeavored to relieve her embarrassment by turning the conversation. Her Majesty said afterwards that a printed copy of the treaty had been sent to her, but she had not yet had time to read it, as it was so bulky a document, and she had told Lady Middleton to open it, who had looked for what concerned her, and made no further search. On the evening of the 28th, the Queen asked the nun, who waited on her, if she had seen the paper that was on her chimney-piece. I have not had the courage to look at it, was the reply. Ah, well, said the queen, then I must for you. And raising herself in the bed, where she was resting her exhausted frame, she put on her spectacles and began to read it aloud. It was a copy of the treaty. When her majesty came to the fourth and fifth articles, which stated, that to ensure forever the peace and repose of Europe and of England, the king of France recognized for himself and his successors the Protestant line of Hanover, and engaged that he who has taken the title of King of Great Britain shall remain no longer in France, etc., etc. She paused and said with a sigh, 
the king of france knows the truth whether my son is unjustly styled king or not i am sure he is more grieved at this than we can be the nun in waiting remained speechless with consternation at what she heard and the queen resumed hard necessity has no law the king of france had no power to act otherwise for the english would not have made peace on any other condition god will take care of us in him we repose our destinies she added that the king her son had sent word to her that his hope was in god who would not forsake him when every other power abandoned him the next morning she maintained her equanimity and even joined in the grace chant before dinner the nun who was present when she read the treaty on the preceding evening drew near and said madam i am astonished at the grace god has given you in enabling you to appear tranquil for my part i was struck with such consternation at what i heard that i could not sleep was it not so with you no i assure you said the queen i have committed everything to god he knows better what is good for us than we do ourselves she ate as usual and manifested no discomposure even when her ladies came on the following day and told her of the general rejoicings that were made in england for the peace a few days afterwards mary beatrice told the nuns that her son had sent a protest to the plenipotentiaries at utrecht against the articles of the treaty as regarded england and had asserted his title to that crown which had been retorted by the cabinet of st james's addressing an atrocious libel to the same congress complaining that an impostor like the pretender was permitted to remain so near at bar le duc the mother of this disinherited prince related this with emotion but without anger the sympathizing community said all they could to console her telling her the cause of her son was in the hands of god who would they hoped soon restore him to the throne of his forefathers if it be god's good pleasure to do so may his will be accomplished replied the queen she said that she had received an address from edinburgh professing the faithful attachment of the scotch to the house of stuart that both scotland and ireland were well disposed but in want of a leader when mary beatrice found that the allied powers had agreed to compensate the elector of bavaria for the loss of a part of his german territories by making him king of sardinia while the duke of savoy was in his turn to receive more than an equivalent for his sardinian province by the acquisition of the crown of sicily she said with a sigh thus we find that every one recovers his goods in one shape or other at this peace but nothing is done for us yet my god added she raising her eyes to heaven it is your will that it should be so and what you will must always be right being informed subsequently that the duke of savoy was about to embark to take possession of his new kingdom of sicily she said those who have kingdoms lose them and those who had not acquired them through this peace but god rules everything and must be adored in all his decrees the duchess of savoy king james's cousin had written to her in terms expressive of much affection and esteem on which mary beatrice observed that she was very grateful for her regard but she could not have the pleasure of recognizing the duke of savoy as king of sicily because her son had protested against everything that was done at the treaty of utrecht 
this was indeed retaining the tone of a crowned head when all that could give importance to that dignity was gone one day after the peace of utrecht had sensibly diminished the hopes that had been fondly cherished by the widowed queen of james the second of seeing her son established on the throne of england the princess of conti who was an illegitimate daughter of louis the fourteenth paid her a formal state visit at chalot accompanied by her three daughters mary beatrice with the delicate tact that was natural to her always caused all the fautils to be removed from her reception-room whenever she expected any of the princesses who were not privileged to occupy those sorts of seats in her presence the three young ladies as they were leaving the room observing to one another on the absence of the fautils scornfully exclaimed as if imputing it to the destitution of the royal exile what a fine instance of economy but they cannot be ignorant of our mother's rank what will people say of this mary beatrice who overheard their impertinence replied with quiet dignity they will say that i am a poor queen and that this is your way of telling me that i have fallen from my proper rank when the duchess dowager of orlan came to visit mary beatrice she tenderly embraced her and told her how much charmed the duke of lorraine and her daughter were with the chevalier de st george and that they were delighted at having him with them mary beatrice was sensibly gratified at this communication and begged madame to convey her thanks to their highnesses for their goodness to her son not having she said words sufficiently eloquent to express her full sense of it herself the chevalier had found it expedient to leave bar for a temporary visit to Luneville, where everything was however arranged for his comfort through the friendship of the duke and duchess of lorraine his only real trouble at this time was his pecuniary destitution and this caused his mother much greater uneasiness than it did him so self-denying was mary beatrice in all her personal expenses that although she suffered much inconvenience when at chalot from writing on an ornamental escrutoire faced with plates of china she could not be persuaded to purchase a proper writing-table even of the cheapest materials and form her ladies one day said to her madam you are not of the same disposition as other princesses who before they had been inconvenienced by their writing-tables as you have been by this would have changed them a dozen times they would have had the means of gratifying their tastes then rejoined her majesty i have not the little that can be called mine belongs to the poor the kind-hearted duchess of lauzun to whom this conversation was repeated sent the queen a new writing-table for a present but no mary beatrice would not accept the friendly offering she was the widow of a king of england the mother of a prince who claimed the crown of that realm and dowerless exile as she was she would not degrade the national honor of the proud land over which she had reigned by allowing any of the ladies of france to minister to her wants not that she conveyed her refusal in terms calculated to offend madame de lauzun she thanked her courteously but said the table was too low and she was about to purchase one for which she would give proper directions mary beatrice found herself at last compelled to buy a writing-table in order to evade the necessity of accepting the present of the duchess of lauzun it cost the mighty sum of five and forty livres less than eight and thirty shillings and even this outlay occasioned the unfortunate queen a pang when she thought of the starving families at saint-germain and she asked the nuns 
whether she ought to give so much money as five and forty livres for a writing table the nuns replied with much simplicity that indeed they seldom gave tradesmen as much as they asked for their goods but they thought that the table was worth the price named her majesty declared that she had no intention to cheapen the article ordered my lady privy purse to pay for it directly and to give a proper recompense to the porter who had brought it poor mary beatrice she must have been more than woman if memories of that splendor that once surrounded her at whitehall rose not before her mental vision on this occasion while hesitating whether she ought to allow herself the indulgence of such an escrutoire as five and forty francs could purchase it would have looked strangely that same piece of furniture in her apartment there beside the costly cabinets and silver filigree tables of italian workmanship which john evelyn admired so greatly and when he saw them decorating the chamber of her royal stepdaughter queen mary thought good conscientious gentlemen that they ought in common honesty to have been returned to their lawful owner End of section nine